Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects like crows, onions and navels, believe it or not. Oh, I love, I love that. Onions will make you cry. It's a history that makes you weep. However, we could also do meats, pleats and bleats, fleets, which is a sort of nautical fleet theme, uh, sleets and sheets. I think we should definitely do sheets. Or we could just follow the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of keys, Sam, is in fact all about Viking power, control, access, the Viking housewife, treasure, weapons and symbolic female power. It's also about Exeter Cathedral and the Exeter Book. It's about the keys of St Peter, as well as latchkey children and World War Two. Or that the history of backstabbers is in fact all about the Bolsheviks and the rise of Stalin. Now that was one of our recent homeschooling episodes. And if you are homeschooling and you're interested in history, go along and check out our back catalogue of 30-odd homeschooling history episodes. Mm, the man doing all of this explanation, who is he? Well, let's say that if history was a coat flapping wildly and uncontrollably in the breeze, like we have today, a hideous easterly coming all the way from Russia, this man, this man would be the tailor scrabbling in his great tin of research for some beautiful buttons to tame that coat, leaving it with a figure-hugging style only the greatest could achieve. He is... Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James the Taylor Daybell. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. That is an elegant, eloquent, <laughs> well-tailored introduction for me. And the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown in the UK 3.0. Well, let's just say, if he were a button-related historian, <laughs> he'd only be... Charles Blois, Duke of Brittany, who, of course, as you all know, lived between, uh, was active between 1345 and 64, the famed owner of a beautiful doublet of silk with over 32 buttons doing it up. So ornate, lavish and sumptuous is his decorative prose with which he stitches together the history of the past. It's 
the truly famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone, James. Thank you very much for that. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, I'm going to talk about that doublet. Oh, good. Oh, good That's good. my hook to start with. Ah, what, um, well, we are doing buttons, everyone. And, we are. Uh, there are so many ways of thinking about buttons that the first one that struck me um, was buttons as identification. But this is because I was sent through the post uh, a collection of military buttons which had been excavated from Shirley Heights, which is a uh, British army fort overlooking Nelson's dockyard in Antigua. And I'd, uh, I've made a, a BBC documentary many years ago now, excavating a sand dune uh, full of, uh, of skeletons on the beach below Shirley Heights. But someone after had seen the, seen the exhibition, the uh, sorry, had seen the documentary and uh, had gone there, or I'm not quite sure what, had somehow come into possession of some army buttons from that period, found or excavated up there, and then sent them to me, uh, which was absolutely delightful. They've been sitting on my desk ever since. And so I suddenly thought, oh, buttons, you can definitely talk about how buttons are used in a military context to identify people. There's a a bit of a a rabbit warren to go down here and you have these crazy, not crazy, but very sensible, um, uh, crazy in the terms of extraordinary button collectors and um, with an amazing ability to be able to identify even the most obscure uh, uh, pieces of uh, parts of an army by the buttons alone. So I saw, oh, well, you could do buttons and identification, which made me also think about buttons and political identity. And did, James, did you ever used to have like a, a, a jacket with, with badges and buttons on it? Sort of I did, yes. Yeah, mm, interesting. Yes. I definitely did as well. I can't remember. It was really annoying. I suppose it's a bit more badges than buttons, but same principle. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of what I'd actually had on them. But certainly... The way that buttons are not just a decorative item, but are actually a key uh, question of identity is what I began to think about. What about you? Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I have been, as you all know, have been writing this book on gloves and I'm writing this chapter at the moment on shopping and clothing. And I chanced upon the wonderful book uh, by the brilliant historian called Ulinka Rublak, who's at Cambridge, uh, the title of which is Dressing Up Cultural Identity in Renaissance Europe. And I was reading uh, one of the sections called, which is titled The Draped and Sewn, where basically what she does is she's charting the big shift in uh, styles of clothing across, you know, the, the sort of long durée, across periods of time. And so what you effectively have is the change from clothing that is merely that is merely draped rather like a sort of Roman toga or something like that, that's sort of quite loose fitting to something that actually becomes far more fitted. And this, of course, is related to the button and the button as a technology suddenly allows you to you know, do things up much more closely in a much more fitted form. And this brings us to this wonderful uh, doublet that I was d- started at the beginning, owned by Ch- Charles of Blois, the Duke of Brittany, between 1345 and 1364. And if, you, if you're lucky enough to have a copy of this volume, turn to page 17 and you will find a picture of this wonderful uh, doublet. Um, imagine it's sort of made made of silk. It's got 30-odd th- buttons down the front and then it's got decorative buttons 
up the sleeves. It's a sort of uh, a sort of pale, uh, creamy colour. Um, we'll post something on our website uh, for it and post it over social media so that you can see it. But, uh, but the, the key thing to think of is that it's actually really thin. And what this does is it accentuates the differences in the body, male and female body in particular. And so we suddenly start getting a very sort of distinct change. And the quote that I read, um, which actually made me think, God, Sam, we must do the history of buttons, was the following. And it's a conversation between the French anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss. Nothing to do with the genes, although genes, of course, have buttons. It's a conversation between him and the brilliant French historian Lucien Fèvre. Uh, and Levi Strauss, writing in 1983, wrote, I recall how I talked to Lucien Fèvre 30 years ago, and he said he wished historians would address problems such as the origin and spread of the button. He was absolutely clear about the fact that the presence or absence of this modest item demarcated important ways of human behaviour. It divided the draped and the sewn, two styles of clothing, one of which posing greater demands on the body, the other posing greater demands on the material, but also reflecting on bodily posture, the art of life, ways of integrating in the world, which distinguish different civilizations. My God, that is one heck of a claim for the humble button. Who knew? But if you follow it on and you think about the way in which the Renaissance period has increasingly tightly tailored clothing, intricately sewn clothes that really accentuate differences between men and women. So there's this really sort of gendered distinction here between masculinity and femininity. And if you think about the court of Henry VIII, for example, and you think about how clothing is used as a real sort of power strategy there. And you think about, you look at the pictures of the portraits of Henry VIII with his sort of big shoulders, strong upper body. You know, he's a very masculine ruler. And you contrast that with the women at the court who, you know, are portrayed having, um, you know, a, a sort of... Um, you know, a smaller, a sort of slender sort of breast, but but also it's often sort of partly visible uh, breasts. Um, and you also think about the way in which the codpiece was used to accentuate the male sort of form. And this is one of my favourite uh, quotes from the book. Uh, Linka Rublak uh, writes that uh, the, the codpiece uh, might frivolously be, be called the Renaissance man's wonder, bar, wonder bra. <laughs> which I think is brilliant. So all yeah. of this is about the way in which the button restructures the way in which we dress, reshapes uh, the the body that is displayed to the outside world and realigns, reimagines codes of masculinity and femininity. So there we are. There's a grand claim for the humble yeah. button, Sam. Well, do you know what? I mean, the more I read into the history of buttons, the more I reckon that buttons have got a lot to answer for. <laughs> and they've got, they certainly seem to be at the centre of things. I, I came across, I was trying to find a an account of buttons and identity. Um, 
and I actually came across a number of them. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to have time to tell you them all, but one was really interesting. It's to do, to do with the First World War. And you might think of allies working with each other being a fairly straightforward process. But let me tell you, with my historian's hat on, that, that uh, getting different nations to operate with each other, even against a common enemy, is unbelievably difficult. The one lesson from history is actually how unbelievably difficult it was, not how simple it is, and how, um, you know, even, even a common enemy is not the unifying factor that you might suspect. In the First World War, you've got a really interesting situation. So the American president, Woodrow Wilson, proclaims that the, the US are going to remain neutral. They, that changes, okay? There's uh, uh, for all sorts of reasons, but particularly there's a German U-boat attack. They sink a ship called the Lusitania. Two thousand people die. There are 128 Americans on board. At the same time, the Americans find out that there's a chance of Germans, uh, the Germans teaming up with the Mexicans. That's all a bit too close to home. It all ends up with America joining the war in April 1917. This, however, leads to a lot of political interesting political problems. The Americans are determined to field an independent army. They want to guarantee their own influence in the peace process. They want to increase European respect for American power. All this this, uh, this sort of self-interest, self-determination of the Americans that affects their ability to actually get on with the British and the French at the time. They certainly want to prove the prowess of the American army as well. Um, one of the people who is most faced with this trouble is a guy called John Pershing, known as Black Jack. Um, it, it was, he'd been born in 1860. Um, it, it, he died in 1948. So interesting that he experienced both both world wars and 40 years of the wars at the end of the 19th century. Anyway, he is responsible for how the Americans are actually going to integrate with the European armies. And in no way is it straightforward. They, For a start, they don't have any experience. The British and uh, the French, for example, have learned a huge amount about trench warfare since the start of the war. Um, you're only, you are several years into the war now. I mean, if you think about the Battle of the Somme, the British army suffers 420,000 casualties, and that's double the entire strength of the American army in 1917 when they join up. And at the same time, they've learned an enormous amount about trench warfare, about conscription, about modern weapons. Uh, and the Americans haven't faced a first-rate European enemy, European army, in a century. And there's a really big issue between the Brits and the French and the Americans about how they are going to uh, sort of accommodate each other. Um there is a proposal to uh, amalgamate uh, the the two forces. So the idea here is that rather than waiting for a fully formed American army to turn up, the British and French military leaders will sort of funnel the, the enormous manpower reserves of the Americans into their own armies. There's a, there's a real uh, sense of urgency here that they think they're gonna, Germans are actually going to win the war. And they're running out of time. They can't wait for the Americans to actually train their troops and get any kind of experience. Um, this is rejected. Um, but then there's a, a kind of a halfway house 
um, in which American infantry battalions are actually sent to France on British ships. They're moved into line. They replace exhausted, depleted British units. And as more and more battalions arrive, they gradually come to form entire American divisions. So they're this halfway house. But what happens is that uh, the none of the generals really took into consideration the attitude of the Americans, the American soldiers, this is. And there was a remarkable distaste for serving under a foreign flag at all, and a particularly big taste for serving under a British flag, and particularly from Irish Americans. And the Irish uh, Americans, um, a a lot of their cultural identity was being anti-British. And so at one stage here, you've got the American Expeditionary Force faces a shortage of clothing. So they turn up in France, haven't got the right clothes. So they they turn to the British suppliers for for help. And they they arrive, they want some tunics, they want some trousers. And a quartermaster turns up. But of course, they're all covered in British buttons. And there's... uh, they put their foot down. They refuse to do anything. They basically go on strike. You have a wave of opposition that sweeps through the entire outfit. And they refuse to wear any clothes that have British coats of arms on them. And they, the Americans realise this is actually a proper problem. They don't press them on it. And what they have, they do is they, they, they wait until a delivery of American buttons is summoned up. Um, and then the Americans can then sew the American buttons onto their British tunics so they don't have to fight under uh, well, wearing British buttons. Um, it's important to say that this was a particular example of Irish Americans, but it wasn't in any way the only group within American society that harboured uh, anti-British settlements, but it, it, sentiments. But it is the one where it came out in a distaste for wearing British buttons. 
And as you move into factories and everything becomes more manufactured and more centralised, so you're destroying the kind of livelihoods of the people who, you know, produced buttons. The button industry in Dorset at the end of the 18th century employed about 4,000 women and children near the town of Shaftesbury. And button making was a really important, you know, local job for people. But also button making could have real consequences on the health. So, for example, if you're making gold buttons that involved mercury that evaporated, this could basically, you know, harm the body. You know, you'd be inhaling poisonous quantities of mercury, which would be really harmful for you. And there are all kinds of sort of, of petitions put forward by the horn button makers during this period uh, and button makers, button sellers, you know, basically saying that if you if the government or the state, you know, centralises too much and doesn't allow them to have the right to make buttons, then thousands of people are going to go without their livelihood. So this is something that's really, really difficult. Uh, and the button industry is the symbol of, of new trade during this period. And buttons are part and parcel of fashion, rather like gloves. Buttons would be a way in which you could style a particular garment and you could put a personal gloss on it, whether this be the kind of military buttons that you were talking about or whether you think about the sort of bright silver buttons that one might have on something like a jacket that would accentuate who you are. There's a very different sort of very sort of gendered difference here between the kinds of buttons that men would have that are sort of large ornate buttons with the kinds of buttons that women would have on their on their on their clothing and actually you know there's a lot of care and attention put on these kinds of buttons that people were wearing um and it becomes part and parcel of luxury and display and ornament. And also we see buttons appearing in literature of the period. And there's a whole sort of play in, in novels like Fanny Hill or, or Lawrence Stern's Tristan Shandy about the whole process of buttoning and unbuttoning, which, of course, is, is in some of those sort of more bawdy novels is connected to sexual acts and the sort of undressing uh, before a, a, a sexual act. So the sort of buttoning up and buttoning down of clothing. So there we are, Sam, the 18th century and the button. Yeah, amazing. Have you ever, I, I assume you have lost a button at some point in your life. <laughs> are you plagued I'm by very, using I'm very good at. I'm very good at stitching buttons on, to be honest. <laughs> I remember I taught how to do that by my mum. Um, the What made me think about this, I found a, there's a whole kind of paraphernalia of advertisements to do with buttons where people trying to sell a particular type of button and maybe a new buttony invention but also these wonderful things called button cards you come across any of those in your research They're, i um, have not no right so if you want to go you go go to a shop and you want to buy a load of buttons you didn't just get them loose you'd buy them on a on a on a little a little card a bit like a, a kind of a business card i suppose where you'd see them flat but they that meant that they, they they could be fitted into fascinating designs as well. So you could have like the drawing of a chap wearing a shirt and then the buttons you're going to buy would be down the centre of his shirt. Um, so that's just part of uh, a, a whole industry of of trying to, to get people to buy buttons. And I found one in the archives of the British Library, which is advertising the new Parisian button. 
Now, this dates, uh, when is this? It's the 19th century. I haven't got a specific date. It just gives it as a 19th century. Um, uh, have you lost a button, it cries. The new Parisian button for boots, trousers and gaiters. It does not require to be sewn on. And, James, this is the kicker, it never comes off. That's a bit of a bit of a uh, bit of a claim here. There are some wonderful instructions on how to use it. Withdraw the stiletto from the head of the awl, placing the base of the same on the short head of the protruding steel. Then pierce the article at the spot where the button is to be fixed, driving the stiletto by means of the awl close to the hilt. This will leave the stiletto remaining in the article and the awl in the hand. Take the button, carefully placing the brass knob in the hollow part of the stiletto. Press firmly with the thumb upon the button, withdrawing the stiletto with the other hand. By this means, the brass knob will have been brought through the material. Now take the little washer, adjusting the brass shank, which is keyed to the slot, turning it round until it slides on. There you are. So that would cost you three pence for boots, five pence for trousers. Uh, you get a dozen buttons for that. And that's from Justin Brothers of Crystal Palace. And that is one of just so, so many different adverts for the entire button making industry. So you can you can uh, do a history of the advertising of it as well, James. So I'm never going to think about doing my trousers up again in the same way. No, and we we haven't talked about the history of the zip either, Mm. uh, which came along and revolutionised everything even further. Yeah, Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. I prefer zips to buttons, I must admit. Although not on shirts. Uh, No. I'd like a zip on a shirt, that would be good. Guys, I I hope you've enjoyed our history of buttons. I have hugely. It's given us all sorts of wonderful things to think about. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And, of course, we are all over social media as ever. We are on Instagram and Facebook, so check us out there. We also we also have our own website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can have signed books. You can see everything that we've been up to, tours in the future, and you can also see all our homeschooling episodes. And we also have a Patreon page, Histories of the Unexpected, uh, Patreon Histories of the Unexpected. Uh, and we are trying to produce as much content content as we can during lockdown and any help or support however small that you could give us to keep this going and pay for production costs would be very gratefully received indeed yeah that's it for now guys and um, thank you all again so much for your interest and support we'll be with you again soon cheerio bye-bye bye guys see you soon This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 